Dear listeners, welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we explore the stories behind the sparks of brilliance in science and innovation. My journey with the topic that we are going to discuss today started when I was a student and was working in a super speciality cardiac hospital founded by my teacher and mentor Dr. K.M. Cherian in Chennai, India. I was posted with my rotational partner in the outpatient department. Towards the end of the posting, which lasted for approximately three months, we had stepped out for the bye break and we came in back into the outpatient consult room. The history of the patient who had come for follow-up had already been taken and I, almost like a punishment, was asked to examine the patient in a blinded fashion. I put my stethoscope on the patient's chest and I was damn sure I had a systolic murmur. This patient was a 68-year-old man and I thought he had iotic stenosis, which is a reason one has a systolic murmur of the kind that I had just heard then. I was told later on that the patient actually had a mechanical heart valve. After that, there were some other patients where I could hear different kinds of sounds called as valve clicks without even using the stethoscope if everyone was really quiet. I had a whole new appreciation of the heart as an organ that pumps blood approximately 60 to 70 times a minute, lasting for a whole lifetime. So imagine an artificial valve has to enable the native heart to work seamlessly during the course of one's lifetime. That feat of biomedical engineering made me marvel. And later on, I moved from there in the as a rotational student in our patient a few years later to procuring homograph valves that would eventually be used in pediatric congenital cardiac defect correction surgeries and adult women who needed valves but were premenopausal. The valves that I first described when I heard the systolic murmur was, was first implanted in 1952. And it took the innovators two years, just two years from the idea to the first human trials. Every single one of the valves were implanted using open surgery, using a heart and lung bypass machine. In the intervening 50 years since, the field has moved on from one valve to another type of valve that is mildly better than the previous one using different materials, etc., until I heard a story. I come from India, and in India, we love telling stories. In the cardiac OR, the stories were always told, most commonly, by our consultant surgeons who were operating one day in 2001, while I was serving as a second assistant on a low-risk low procedure, I was told a story that changed my outlook towards research and innovation. It was a story about a Danish cardiologist who had used big heart valves that he had dissected out from the heart that he got from the butchers. And he used sternal wires, the kind of wires that was used to close the chest after, a th- uh, after the, the, the chest was sprayed open. And he took the pig valve, meshed it into the sternal wire to create an expandable heart valve. And the idea was to implant them in the pig without opening the chest. I was told that this was the first attempt at creating a transcutaneous heart valve. This is where our guest today comes in. He, with his team and fellow inventors, single-handedly changed valve procedure. And today, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is my absolute pleasure in welcoming Dr. Stanton Rowe to Scraps. Welcome, Stanton. Well, thank you so much. Um, I I love your mention of Dr. Henning Ruth Anderson, who's uh, 
deserves a huge amount of credit for his uh, truly innovative work. And he's a wonderful man, by the way. I don't know if you've had a chance to meet him, but a very warm. I have not. I would love to one day. Yeah, a very, a very warm, engaging, thoughtful, innovative guy who uh, I would say the the only challenge Henning had was he was uh, 15 years ahead of everybody else. Yeah, which, which seems to be the story with a lot of innovators who are completely blazing the trail and the field is still hard to catch up on. And therein, actually, there's a very interesting story, isn't it, uh, that he had written up his paper and he had sent it across. And, and tell us what happened, Stan. Well, the story of Henning is that he was inspired with the idea after having attended a course in Phoenix, Arizona um, on endovascular techniques. Um, he was an interventional cardiologist and he attended this course and he saw stents for the first time. But unlike many people, including Julio Palmas, who's a brilliant, brilliant man, um, unlike Julio, when he saw stents, he thought of this concept of putting a valve in, you know, just when he was first introduced. And so um, Henning says flying back from Phoenix to Aarhus, Denmark, where which is his home, he started making drawings of placing valves inside of stents. Well, again, like many other, uh, or unlike many other inventors, um, it didn't stop with just making some drawings and filing a patent. As you said, Henning uh, did extraordinary work. He went back and did 80 animal experiments, which is just amazing. He went to the venture shop, bought pig hearts, hand resected out, the porcine valves, he handmade stents from sternal wires. Uh, and actually, the jig that he created and used to create the stent is at Edwards Life Sciences, which is kind of fun that he donated it to, to the museum there. And then he hand-sewed on the um, these porcine valves uh, with really um, atrocious, what he called cardiology knots because uh, cardiologists don't really know, learn how to tie surgical knots very well. <laughs> but he did 80 animal experiments, which is just astounding. And um, he did fundamentally prove the concept of a collapsible and expandable, um, what we today call a percutaneous heart valve. It was pretty amazing. So it, with with 80 animal experiments, I imagine the butcher was getting a little bit curious about what was happening there. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. He, he somehow kept, I don't think he did it over a week's time, okay? I think it took him a few years, and he had a nice team of people he worked with there, and um, they did file patents. But they ran into the same fundamental challenge that we did as well. And that is that um, the acceptance of this idea was um, was very poor. So Henning first tried to publish. So he submitted his manuscript from doing this animal work to Jack, to Circulation, to 
the Lancet and, you know, thinking, well, this is, this is really breakthrough work. People are going to want to see this. No one wanted to publish it. You know, who are you? Some, somebody no one had ever heard of in Aarhus, Denmark, right? So he got rejected. And, um, and it looks like he was rejected citing low priority. Yes, <laughs> right. Who needs this, right? I mean, who needs a percutaneous valve? And um, so he finally, you know, he was a persistent guy. So he finally got an abstract, uh, a poster uh, that was accepted at a European Congress of Cardiology. And uh, there's a picture of him, a very young Henning, standing in front of this poster. And it was, I don't know, poster number 1,327 or something like that, right? In the very back of the poster hall. And nobody showed up. I mean, here's a guy with this breakthrough idea, and no one's interested in it. And um, so he takes it to industry. So he goes to see all the uh, the top heart valve companies. And you can imagine uh, the heart valve companies uh, service the cardiothoracic surgeons. This is who sits on their advisory boards. And cardiothoracic surgeons say, a percutaneous heart valve, well, that, that's a stupid idea. You know, percutaneous heart valve, I mean, surgical heart valves work perfectly well, and our surgery is nearly perfect. Why do we need something like that? So he was routinely rejected by all of the heart valve companies. And um, I only ran into Henning uh, when I started doing diligence on Crivier. Crivier didn't actually know about Henning Root Anderson. Dr. Crivier was the chief of cardiology in Rouen, France. He had a keen interest in non-surgical treatment of aortic stenosis. And um, he had been the inventor of balloon aortic valvuloplasty. And balloon valvuloplasty was the first attempt at trying to provide these patients. And we should probably set the stage for who are these patients. The average age of a patient undergoing heart valve surgery is between uh, early 70s and early 80s. This is when aortic stenosis occurs. And, of course, aortic stenosis is the narrowing of the aortic valve sits between the left ventricle and the aorta. And all of your blood supply goes through it. A normal aortic valve is three to four centimeters in effective uh, orifice area. These patients have a 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 square centimeter valve area. So all of your your cardiac output is being squeezed through this very narrow narrowed um, calcific fibrotic valve. And it causes, we've known from Brumwald in, in the uh, 60s, that it causes, um, you know, once patients are symptomatic, it causes sudden death, syncope, heart failure, and um, it's devastating. Once they become symptomatic, they fall off a cliff. And they go through a long period of being asymptomatic, but once they become symptomatic, it's devastating. 
Um, so Cribier came up with this idea for a balloon to treat this disease so that these older patients didn't have to go through open-heart surgery. And in fact, the balloon provided help, right? Patients went from 0.6 to maybe 1.0 valve area. The problem was in six months to nine months, almost all of them had restenosed. So it's very similar to a coronary angioplasty where they stick a guide wire and then a catheter and a balloon to kind of expand the the plaque within the coronary artery. So you're doing the same principles for the valves. That's exactly right. And um, again, it helped um, for a short period of time and patients felt better, which was really encouraging. The problem was it wasn't a durable procedure. So Crivier... Um, came up with the idea of, well, let's make a percutaneous heart valve. And many of his ideas were different from Dr. Anderson's, but he didn't. He wasn't really influenced by Anderson. He didn't really know about them. So when Crivier presented this to me, I was at Johnson & Johnson, and I had worked on developing the first coronary stents. And so the idea of having a a stented valve made a lot of sense to me. I just didn't know much about valvular disease. So I had to go back and study it, and I was looking at all the precedents. I went to the studies, and I found uh, both Anderson patents, and I found his early publications. And um, this was in the early 90s. And um, I thought it was very interesting. So... I was, um, I had worked on the coronary step for many years, and then I moved over to head up um, business development and advanced technology and worldwide clinical research at J&J in their coronary business. And um, so I worked on licensing Cribier into J&J. But it was about the same time that J&J was buying Cordis. And so when J&J bought Cordis, they were trying to integrate, you know, all of the Cordis development projects, all of the J&J projects. And um, it was it was an untenable agglomeration of R&D projects. And so the Cribier percutaneous valve, crazy idea, fell off the table. Was not interesting enough to pursue, and in fact, they never even did the early prototype. For it. Well, I left J and J about that time. Um, went to Datascope for a few years, working there, and that's where Cribier called me up and said, "Stan, you always liked this idea. Why don't we do something with it? Because J and J isn't doing anything." I said, "Well, why don't you call them and see if you can get your rights back." So I gave him the guy to call, and in fact, Cribier called the guy and said, hey, you guys haven't done what you were supposed to do. Why don't you send, sign this back over to me? And the guy did. And um, we started talking about forming a company around this idea. So Stan, this is something where you are at Cardis, and then you moved over. J&J bought Cardis, then it became Cardis and J&J. And then this is a conversation that actually happened while you were part of Cardis J&J Group, correct? Just in terms of time scale. 
Uh, no, I had actually left Johnson and Johnson because the the integration of the two groups uh, run by McKinsey <laughs> was miserably done. <laughs> yeah, and so they ended up over the next two years losing almost all of the Cordis management and all of the J and J management, and turned it over about five more times, which is wow. probably the why the uh, coronary stent business just completely collapsed at J&J was uh, the turnover of management and people who knew the business, uh, which was a travesty. But, um, you know, I, I didn't like the way it was being run, so I left, went to Datascope. And this is when Crevier called me. I was sitting there. I see. Uh, and um, I was a bit frustrated by um, trying to grow Datascope. Um, and so I, um, you know, I started talking with Cribier about this and it ended up that, uh, Stan Rabinovich had joined me from Johnson and Johnson, uh, at Datascope. And he and I reached out to Marty Leon, who had been my medical director at J and J, uh, and is a very prominent, um, interventional cardiologist. And the four of us decided that we would form a partnership to try to develop percutaneous heart valves. And from that, uh, we formed percutaneous valve technologies. And Stan and I both ended up leaving Datascope to spend all of our time trying to develop this crazy idea. (laughs) Well, um, I went out and raised a little bit of seed funding um, for this. And... um, we, Stan and I found a company in Israel that would uh, was interested in doing um, contract development work for us there. Yeah. Um, and so we had kind of the, the beginnings of this um, laid out, and that's when I kind of went on the road to try to get Series A financing. We did a little bit of early prototyping work, and I'd put together a really bad PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and I went uh, up and down Sand Hill Road. You know, I had been a vice president at Johnson & Johnson. I had launched one of the most successful devices ever in the medical device arena, the core. The Palmash stent sold, I think, about $650 million the first year. Yeah. So I had, I had some credibility to talk to these guys. And so I would go up and down Sand Hill Road and, and try to raise money for PVT. And um, the venture capitalists would listen carefully. And, of course, they're not heart valve experts. And they would say, um, well, that's an interesting idea. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one before, a percutaneous heart valve. We'll look into it. Well, what does that mean? We'll look into it. This is a story. Many entrepreneurs can tell you, right? Well, we'll look into it means, well, that's an interesting one. We don't know anything about it, so we're going to call up the experts and see what they say. (laughs) So they call up the experts, and, of course, the experts are the cardiothoracic surgeons. Cardiac surgeons, yeah. And what do the cardiac surgeons say about percutaneous heart valves? Well, they say, well, that's just about the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Okay, we can treat 100-year-old patients with surgical heart valves. We perfected this surgical procedure over 30 years. 
we have a 4% mortality rate. Just go look at the Society of Thoracic Surgery. Um, surgical valves last for 20 years. Even the tissue valves last 20 years. The mechanical valves last forever, they would say. Um, so what problem are you solving? We can treat all these patients, right? Um, if you ask a, a surgeon how many patients they turn away a year, they would say uh, two or three are really non-surgical patients. There's no market for this. And besides that, there are all the technical issues. You can't collapse a heart valve, okay? If you put tissue in it, tissue can't withstand crimping, okay? You can't stent aortic stenosis out of the way. That's impossible. We take out these valves every day. It's a rock. You can't stent that open. You can't make something like that durable. It's impossible to make that durable. You know, these things are very difficult to make. If you did try to stent it open, uh, it would fragment and all the patients would have a stroke. And by the way, cardiologists don't know anything about this business and ought to stay out of it. Yeah, and, and, and to the first point there, Stan, isn't the fact that most of the patients are elderly and there is a huge risk of anesthesia when these patients would go, um, would go under and therefore that would potentially increase the risk of complications? So did the surgeons already think that they had sorted that? Well, so I always say, you know, my perspective on this, number one, is that the surgeons were not disingenuous. This is their actual experience of surgery, right? But it's the blind men and the elephant. They can't see the other side of the elephant, right? Um, so they were being genuine about their experience and uh, other than the cardiologists don't know anything about this, which is a bit of a territorial response. Um, I think that was their true experience of surgery, and they were genuinely convinced that this was an impossible thing to do. Uh, but I would say this to all the entrepreneurs out there, right? If you're doing something that's disruptive in medicine, just expect this kind of response. You're going to hear it. If it's a disruptive, you're going to have people say, it's a stupid idea, it'll never work. And I think the idea is you've got to really just focus on patients and what is their experience and who's being served and who's not being yeah. served, who has good outcomes and who's keeping score. All those things are relevant, right? Let's start with, with your question. Um, no one asked the stupid question. I always say the, the stupid question was, I think if you think about this from the patient's perspective, you would say, why would I refer a non-surgical patient to a surgeon? Yeah. Why would I want to go under the knife? Right. So all these referring physicians are sitting on patients who either refuse surgery or they think are poor surgical candidates. Why would they possibly send them to a surgeon who does what? Surgeons do surgery. That's all they do. They're not going to treat them medically. So there are tens of thousands of patients out there who have aortic stenosis that are not seeing surgeons. So the surgeons say, 
We only turned down two or three patients. Of course, they're all pre-screened. They, they don't yeah. ever make it to see the surgeon. So, and, and I think some of the other questions are not just technical questions about can you build a valve, but I think some of the questions were around, like, if you keep score by who's alive yeah. and who's dead, it doesn't really tell the story well, right? The story, the patient experience is, you know, if you think about it from a patient perspective, they live or they die is binary. And if you talk to a patient, they will say, listen, um, what do you want from your surgery? They say, well, I, you know, if I either I live or I die, but I don't want to have a stroke. I don't want to be sent to a nursing home. I want my energy back and I want to go home and be with my family. Those were their goals, which are very understandable. Now the question is, does surgery really give them that? Well, a large percentage of patients were going to nursing homes. They don't do well. Right, so morbidity is actually more impactful to patients than mortality because mortality they live or they die. Right, we can keep that score of that. But if you have twenty or thirty percent morbidity, right, I have renal failure, I have reoperation, I have bleeding, I have stroke. Wow, that that's what impacts patients. Now, can I improve upon that? Well, if I don't open up your chest stop your heart party on cardiopulmonary bypass, okay, instead of doing a three-hour surgical procedure with months of recovery, if I could audaciously actually do this while you're awake, okay, what could happen? What's the opportunity? Now, we didn't have all the answers, but we had that dream. We had that dream that, Maybe we could make this look a little bit like a stent procedure. I'll go in through the femoral artery, snake a catheter up, take it around the aortic arch, cross the aortic valve. Not easy to do in aortic stenosis. And expand this valve with a very, very strong stent, which will hold it in place. In fact, it's, it's pretty ironic, right? When we first started making these, and we wanted to do animal studies to develop this procedure. When you put it in pigs, the absence of aortic stenosis means it won't stay in place. So we worked very closely with Dr. Crivier and his associate, Dr. Elchaninov, out of Rouen. We did our animal studies in Paris, so we flew there. And... The very first pig we put it in, it stayed in for about, I don't know, a day, day and a half. Looked beautiful. And then the next, I don't know, 50 animals, it embolized. <laughs> so we use the disease. Because the normal internal structure of the aorta is slippery, whereas a disease aortic valve has calcium, has sclerose tissue, fibrous tissue to hold this whole kind of structure in place, which is what you're trying to get to. Yeah, it's making lemonade out of lemons, right? So we use the disease to actually hold the valve in place. But when you watch all these things embolize, it just scares the hell out of you as an innovator, right? So 
we learned a lot doing these animal experiments, but they were also miserable in that we didn't, uh, it took a long time to figure out how to actually validate a valve in animals, a percutaneous valve. Um, so we worked very closely together with our physician partners. We did this early animal work. <clears throat> and then I went to see Dr. Vermont. Dr. Renu Vermani is one of the foremost cardiac pathologists um, in the world. And, you know, she's a brilliant lady. And um, I'd already met with her and talked with her about a percutaneous heart valve at TCT, one of the leading cardiology courses. Um, I bought her a glass of wine. We sat down and talked about it. And she spent about an hour telling me in excruciating detail why this was never, ever going to work. And um, so after that thrashing, um, I finally went back to her and I said, um, Renu, listen, we actually want to put this in some human hearts with aortic stenosis. And she said, you know, this is a really stupid idea. This is not going to work. You can't stent open aortic stenosis. I said, yeah, I realize that. But listen, maybe what we can do is we can learn from trying. We're going to fail, but by observing the failure, we can figure out how to make it work. This was the only way I could get renewed to <laughs> let me treat some of the hundreds of aortic stenosis hearts that she had at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. So yeah. after a conversation, she finally let us come down, and we went down to Washington, D.C. And on a Saturday, and Renew had taken out these Parts that were sitting in formalin for five years. So you're talking about rigid? Unlikely. <laughs> These were very rigid aortic stenosis. And I was astounded. You could get just the tip of your little finger through these uh, valves, and that was it. I mean, they were just rock hard. Yeah. So we took stents that we planned to use to open up. We didn't actually put the valves in them because it – couldn't test the valves. We wanted to test the radial force of the stents. And we'd attach sutures to them so we could measure the pullout forces. Yeah. So we put it in a balloon, and, of course, we pre-dilated it. And, of course, these valves that were so rigid would open up with a balloon. But as soon as you deflated the balloon, they would collapse back down pretty much the same size, right? Which is why... A balloon aortic valvioplasty really didn't work very well. So then we put the stent in and um, we opened up the aortic stenosis and it was pretty astounding. It was, um, it just locked into the disease. We could put them underneath the coronary ostea, right? So that, that allowed adequate blood flow to the coronaries. And when we did pull testing with the sutures, the sutures snapped at 5.7 pounds of force. It was astoundingly secure in that location. It's like deploying a, a very strong stent into a cinder block, right? It's not going anywhere because this calcific fibrotic disease held it in place. So it gave us a lot of confidence that we were doing the right thing and after failing i don't know we you know we probably went through a hundred different designs 
we start, first started working on polymer valve leaflets because I was very afraid that that pericardial tissue would be too thick to actually make a percutaneous valve out of. Right? By the time you assembled one and collapsed it down, it would be too large to put it in the femoral And, and these were bovine pericardium or human pericardium? Yeah, so they were bovine pericardium. They were, they were the pericardial sacs that were um, uh, harvested when, when the animals were harvested, and then they're treated in glutaraldehyde. Yeah. And, um, and they become a very nice biomaterial. Um, and, of course, that's what tissue valves were made out of predominantly um, in, uh, by Edwards, and, and uh, who had really pioneered that work. So um, we finally got our hands on some pericardial tissue, and in fact, that worked remarkably well. They were still way too large. They were about 24 to 26 French, which is big, but, uh, but possible for many patients. And um, we made them 23 millimeters in diameter because that was the average size of surgical valves. And um, so we made, you know, we started making these and they started working really well in our hydrodynamic testing. We finally figured out how to put them in the animals. We put them in the descending aorta in animals. And then we, we basically ripped out an aortic leaflet in the animal to cause massive regurgitation and it caused the valve to function. It's called a Huffnagel valve. I don't know if you've ever heard of one of those, but it was a way to treat uh, aortic regurgitation that a uh, surgeon used back in the 50s. Mm. So uh, we were able to survive animals that way and do, um, you know, kind of biotoxicity testing um, in longer term in animals. So while we were doing this work um, and we were preparing for our first inhuman experience and things were going really well, we were probably a couple of months away from thinking about doing our first in human, Dr. Cribier called me up and he said, Stan, I need the valve. <laughs> Out of the blue, just you, like that. Yeah. What do you mean a lot? Well, he said, I've got a patient who's dying and um, this is the only way we can save his life. I said, okay, um, well, tell me about him. This guy's 57 years old. Only 57, which probably means he has a bicuspid valve. The younger patients are the ones that have bicuspid. Yeah. But he'd been turned down by uh, three surgical teams, uh, two in Paris and one in Rouen. Um, he showed up in cardiogenic shock in Rouen with his aortic stenosis and an ejection fraction of 8%. I didn't actually know you could be alive with an 8% ejection fraction. Um, with normal is 55. Um, Rivier did balloon valvuloplasty on him, but, uh, the next morning he was shocky again and he was not going to make it. Uh, he was a non-surgical patient because he had been a coal miner. He had bad lungs and had a failed aortobifemoral graft. Okay. So this guy is a train wreck. Um, what do you think about him as a, Person, human patient. This somebody you would treat? Most people will not touch those patients with the barge pole, unfortunately, as a first patient, right? 
it's it's a ridiculous idea, right? So what will happen is, I said to Crivier, listen, we'll try to save this guy's life. We'll be the good guys. We'll go in. We'll try to save his life. Then he's going to die anyway. And then the French regulatory authorities are going to say that we killed him, right? We'll, we'll try to save his life, and then we'll be accused of killing the guy. So I said, this is a stupid idea. But I said, I'll think about it. So, you know, I talked to Marty Leon, who who encouraged us to do the case, and and Stan Rabinovich, and I would just, I, I just thought, this is crazy. But then, you know, on the walls of PVT, we had two pictures. We had a picture of Dr. Cribier's mother, who actually had aortic stenosis. And she was not a good surgical candidate, right? And she kind of represented the patients that we were working for, the patients in the future that we hoped that we could treat. She lived in uh, in England, and um, she couldn't even get balloon valvioplasty. And uh, she died of heart failure with aortic stenosis because she was a poor surgical candidate. And I thought about these patients. This is who we're doing it for, right? These are the patients we serve. And this was our first opportunity to try to serve a patient. It was a really, really bad patient. By the way, let me explain how bad a patient he is. Not only has he got an 8% ejection fraction, bad lungs, but because he has a failed aortobifemoral graft, the way we've done all of these patients is through the femoral artery coming up the aorta and going across the aortic valve, right? Well, you can't do that with this patient. He has a failed aortobifemoral graft. We can't go up the femoral arteries. So Crubier, who's done mitral balloon valvuloplasty, knows the way to do this. What you do is you go up from the femoral vein. You create a hole in the, in the atrial septum with a needle. You balloon open that hole. You cross from the right atrium to the left atrium. You put a guide wire in and a catheter. Then you have to take this guide wire and catheter, take it from the right atrium to the left atrium, then across the mitral valve into the left ventricle. Then you make a 120-degree turn, push the guide wire out across the aortic valve, snare the wire, which you, you can get a very small catheter through the femoral artery, snare that wire, and externalize it through the femoral artery. It's called body floss. Okay, You can take a wire from the femoral artery all the way through the heart and back out through the other femoral, uh, from the femoral vein out to the femoral artery. You you guys need to come up with some better names than body floss. It's it's a it paints a picture. <laughs> and so you're you're basically playing you're basically playing Mission Impossible meets MacGyver while using ways as a means to get through the heart. Oh, with a dying patient and and a guy who's in shock, right? So, Crubier is incredibly skilled and courageous and dedicated to try to save this guy's life. 
So I tell the team at Israel to take a vow, two vows actually, and fly up from Israel and um, meet Cribier. They take a flight overnight. They're there for the case the next morning. Um, Cribier, you know, starts without us because he would we would have missed the case trying to get there. Yeah, and sometimes it's all about the belief in the technology. Well, the engineers were there, but we, Stan and Rabinovich and I couldn't do this. So we sit up all night um, waiting to hear the results of this case. So, in fact, Rivier creates this guide wire. And when you try to take the valve, the valve's about, you know, over two and a half centimeters long, right? And so when you take this, um, around the left ventricle, it props open the mitral valve, which causes mitral insufficiency. And this guy goes into asystole, right? So his heart stops during this case. And Cribier deploys the valve under chest compressions. So they're pumping on the guy's chest. Right. So a nurse is. Is standing on this guy's case, pushing on his chest, while Cribier deploys the valve. And seconds later, after the valve is deployed, the guy's normal rhythm starts. And over the next couple of hours, he goes from being ashen, gray, and dying to pink and responsive. And yeah, so, so the mitral regurgitation was just during the procedure. So when we took the wire out, it, it was restored. And the aortic stenosis, which was what was his biggest problem, um, was was taken care of. And, um, you know, he he sat up and had a glass of champagne and talked with him in Cribier that night. And I always think, I always say, well, of course he had champagne. It was it was France, for goodness sake, right? Don't all the patients get champagne after their surgery? <laughs> but uh, this actually, this guy actually met with um, with reporters the next day because it was in the French news that uh, this was the first case in the world where a patient had had their valve replaced without open heart surgery. It was pretty re- remarkable. And, um, and so we, um, you know, this, this was, um, the beginning of treating a series of really bad cases because guess what started to show up? Patients in shock (laughs) who were terrible surgical candidates. They were all showing up in Rouen. So, um, I think it's one of the challenges we face as entrepreneurs in, medical devices and probably other areas as well that the when you're doing something truly novel the risk benefit equation is always there in medicine so where is the risk benefit favorable well it's in patients who are at wit's end they have no alternative right if they're dying they're in shock they're there's no nothing else that can be done for them, really. And those are, those are the patients you want to start your new device therapy with, because half of them are going to die anyway. 
no matter what you do, right? Their end organ failure is, is imminent. So it's a predicament when you're doing truly novel development where there's no predicate that you end up in, in treating the very worst patients. And, and I think that was actually the early history of creating, of doing surgical valves as well. Um, about half of those patients died early on. And, um, it's, it's a miserable place to, to work. And in fact, you know, what we always thought held to be true that percutaneous valve, as we started going through randomized clinical trials and moving from non-surgical patients to high-risk patients to moderate-risk patients to low-risk patients, the data just got better and better. It's not just the learning curve or just the valve development, but those were the best patients for response, right? So, you know, we did a series of these patients. I um, ended up doing a Series B financing for the company. I had Medtronic and Boston Scientific come in. Uh, and I failed to mention that, um, you know, I went in and uh, with my Series A financing, I bought the Anderson patents, uh, legitimized all the work that Henning Anderson had done, and uh, brought Henning down to see some of the animal studies. And, Talked with him a lot and got to be friends with Henning, who I have huge respect for. And um, and what was funny was that three weeks after I bought the Anderson patents, uh, J and J bought Hartport. It was just, I bought the Anderson patents from Hartport, <laughs> so I only beat out J and J by three weeks. And in fact, it was pretty interesting. Even Edwards Life Sciences bid on the Anderson patents, and we outbid Edwards, our startup company did, for the Anderson patents. And I, I frequently ask biomedical engineering students or entrepreneurs when I'm giving lectures, I say, okay, so we bought the Anderson patents before we had a working valve. Why would you do that? Why would you buy the patents before you had a product that was working? And you just have to think through, when you're an entrepreneur, you have to be all in, right? You have to take all, assume all that risk. What, what would the value of the Anderson patents be after we prove that it worked? And why would they license it to us? If we did all the work to, to prove that it works, we just create value for them, and then we have to pay 10 times more for it. So you have to assume all that risk. We had to take the risk of buying Anderson early on before we knew that it worked, right? We also structured it in a way that we, um, we paid them no royalty. We gave them a small percentage of the company. And um, I paid them a million dollars up front with a $2 million note that I owed them in two years. You had a question? We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. I've actually, 
I've heard you talk about sort of the the path of um, PVT and how how you took it from inception um, through an acquisition, and I, I'm curious because it's a fascinating story the way that you orchestrated the players among your advisors and your board through the technological process and then through ultimate um, acquisition. I was hoping you could expand upon that a little bit. If the implantation story was not a drama in itself, I think I, th- I, th- I think this one is an absolute thriller, in my opinion. Yeah. This one will give you heartburn. I don't know about the rest of it, but. <laughs> well, um, you know, I was very lucky to find this group in Israel. And um, so, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they wanted to do contract engineering. So, number one, I don't like contract engineering. Contract engineering doesn't have, I I shouldn't say that, I I should be careful. I don't like handing a project, a whole project to contract engineering. Okay, contract engineering is great for doing specific things, right? Make me a stent to this specification. Make me a balloon to this specification. Cut this for me. Doing specific tasks, thats I, I absolutely think they're great at that. But you don't want to hand them a project because they don't have the same incentives you do. Their incentive is take longer, make more money, right? So I always thought, well, you know, I can't have them do all my engineering. That doesn't make any sense, right? But they wanted to participate. So I said, look, um, If we're going to do this, I want to align our interests. So in lieu of profit, I want you to have options in the company. So I'll pay you to break even in your product development, okay? But I don't want to pay you any profit. Your profit will be in the form of options, and that way our interests will be aligned. And Right. And I'm going to, number two, pay you on a milestone basis. So we're going to break this into elements. And when you accomplish certain things, then and only then. Thing. So the idea of constructing this um, contract engineering um, term sheet was really critical to me. And it had those, those two elements of I'm we're going to pay you on a milestone basis. We're going to pay you profit uh, in lieu. Uh, we're going to give you uh, options instead of profit. And then thirdly, I said, I'm going to train your engineers in this. I'm going to invest a lot of time in training them in medicine, and aortic stenosis, exposing them to cases. <clears throat> I want to be able to, to employ them at the end of our contract if they're good. And our contract was like 14 months. So sure enough, after 14 months, um, I had three engineers um, that were working for me through this contract engineering group. I hired all three of them. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I ended up putting the company in, I, I located them inside of the contract engineering company, which is one of the largest in Israel. Yeah. So I just carved out some rooms, some space there, 
and house the engineering group there. And that way they had access to the broader capability of the whole contract engineering firm. And <clears throat> that actually worked out very, very well because they were brilliant engineers. Um, the three guys were Asaf Bosch and Itai Pellet and Nefanel Benishu, and they were fantastic. And then Itai Pellet joined us later as the fourth kind of key engineer. And these guys were, were really the core engineering team behind the percutaneous valve. So we had a U.S.-based group, Stan Rabinovich and myself, who did ran kind of organized it all, did the financing, <clears throat> the marketing, the project management, and then the the engineering group was based in Israel. And it, in some respects, it took advantage of what each group does best. I think being well connected in the medical community. And the market side and the financing is what the U.S. does best. Israel does absolutely amazing um, engineering. Uh, they're entrepreneurial. Their uh, engineering schooling is excellent. They are phenomenal problem solvers. And um, they're hungry to learn. And so. Um, it was it was a great experience to work with them. Stan and I, I can't tell you how many trips. We went there once a month at least to Israel for uh, the whole whole period. And we went there during periods where, you know, they were blowing up buses and shooting people in, on the beaches. And I remember going there with Stan um, over my wife's protest. Uh, and she was amazingly supportive during all this time, but she didn't love the idea that we were going there while they were blowing things up. And we went to this hotel that we stayed at, and there were probably, the, the hotel probably held, I don't know, 500, 600 people, and there were like eight people in the hotel. No one was there. No one was traveling to Israel. And when we would go to restaurants, they had a guy, stand out front and they would look in your bags, check everything out before you could go in a restaurant because they were blowing up restaurants. The good news is that my team had all been in the military, of course, right? I had one guy who was um, in, a, in the intelligence service. Um, Asaf, who, who ran the team there, was a tank commander. Um, Benjamin had been a uh, captain in the equivalent of the Navy SEALs. And this is not some guys you want to mess with <laughs> who were my engineering team. So I always felt pretty comfortable going together with them. because Which probably <laughs> makes mess my excellence in execution. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think um, finding... Um, funding, as I mentioned, was very difficult, but I found some great investors finally uh, in a group in Israel, Yuval Benur, uh, from Medica Venture Partners, invested in the company, alongside with Oxford Bioscience Partners, and um, their Jeff Barnes was the lead, and 
those two invested Series A, and they were great partners throughout the whole experience. And then when it came time to do Series B, I told them I wanted to um, get two strategic partners to invest in the company. And, um, you know, our post-money valuation, I think, was um, $11 million after Series A. And I was going to ask for a $45 million pre-money valuation, which they thought was completely outrageous. And we had some tough discussions about that. But at the end of the day, um, we were able to get both um, Boston Scientific and Medtronic to co-lead the, um, the investment. And as I've mentioned, Johnson Johnson bought Hartport and since Hartport owned shares of, of PVT from the Anderson acquisition, I had Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic, and Boston Scientific all sitting on my board. The three big heavy hitters, yeah. yeah. That must be an interesting it, board meeting all the was. time. Well, you know, I got to say, I had phenomenal board members. They put Steve Osterley, was the chief scientist at Medtronic, and he sat on my board. And he's just a phenomenal guy. And, um, and then I had Paul LaViolette from Boston Scientific, son of my board. He was the COO of Boston, a phenomenal guy. And so these guys were just first-class citizens on my board. I was felt very blessed to have them there. And they got the development process. But after we did these first few cases, you know, um, I I thought you know th- this this really proves the early feasibility. There's a a chance to sell the company at this point in time. So I called Mike Masallam, the CEO of Edwards Life Sciences. I, this was uh, September 2003, and we were going to TCT. The big interventional cardiology course. I said, Mike, let's have breakfast. And Mike said, okay, sure, I'll meet you for breakfast. So in terms of timeline there, Stan, was it actually from 97 when you started PVT all the way through to 2003? So it took you six years to get from there to? No, 97 to 99 was pretty much squandered by J&J doing nothing. I see, I see, okay. Right, and so 99 is when PVT was founded, and then 2000 is when we raised Series A finance, uh, when we raised seed capital. 2001, we got Series A financing. Yeah. And then late 2002, early 2003, we got Series B financing. That's pretty fast. At what point in time did, did Crubier call for his emergency patient? So our case was April 2002. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. So um, so here it is. After April 2002, we've done a series of, um, of really diff- of, you know, challenging cases, but they continued to prove that the valve was functioning well. And um, September 03, after our um, Series B financing and December of 02 in January 03, we did our Series B. I have 
breakfast with Mike Masalem at TCT. And I did what any good CEO would do. I said, you know, Mike, you're the largest heart valve manufacturer in the world. PVT should be an Edwards company. And Mike said, well, really? Well, why is that? I said, well, because PVT offers the biggest threat and the biggest opportunity to Edwards. Right? The biggest threat, because this is disruptive technology. If you're not part of it, it... And you did that while and you did that while you actually had three strategics, or rather J&J as well, J&J Medtronic and Boston Scientific on correct. the code. Yeah. So I'll tell you more about that. <laughs> so um, yeah. I'm talking with Mike, and, and so I said, and, and the biggest opportunity is, of course, if this does work, you want to be the guy, you know, managing it. So, you know, Mike and I talked about this for a while. Mike's a brilliant guy, a phenomenal leader. And he says, but, you know, I wouldn't want to be a stalking horse. A stalking horse meaning I don't, he knows I've got J&J Medtronic in, in Boston on my board. I don't want to be the guy who starts a bidding war because I know I can't win it. Right? Yeah. So I said to Mike, well, if I can solve that problem for you, would you be interested in buying the company? And Mike says, yeah. So I go back to my board, and I said, you know you guys, J&J, Medtronic, Boston, if we ever do get an outside offer, um, you guys shouldn't be evaluating it because you have a conflict of interest. We ought to have an independent group that evaluates any outside offer that we get. That is very, very interesting and and very diplomatic. <laughs> so... I set up an independent group from the board, uh, which we had an independent director, uh, Marv Woodall, uh, who used to be the uh, head of Johnson & Johnson's interventional group and had been my boss before, uh, a wonderful, brilliant man, uh, kind of head up that group and myself, and I think it was Jeff Barnes and Stan. So the four of us would evaluate any outside uh, offers. So I was able to call back Mike and say, hey, look, you know, we have, you know, we can have a private conversation because this group can independently talk to you without having to inform all the others. So we sat down with Edwards at a airport meeting in Chicago and talked about the possibility of an acquisition. And again, they were very concerned about um, being a stocking horse. So the point was is that they could not give us a term sheet. They gave me a term sheet I'd have to take to the board. 
So we kind of agreed upon a number and did the whole document. We did, I don't know if you've ever seen what it looks like to document an acquisition, but it's about a uh, 12-inch stack of paper is all the documents it takes. So um, Stan and I started a process uh, with one other lawyer to um, try to negotiate this entire acquisition, but we didn't have a term sheet. We're just going to do the entire deal and then take it to the board. So I didn't sleep for like three weeks. No kidding. <laughs> doing this deal, right? Uh, because it was coming up in our board meeting in December. So what we agreed upon is we came to an agreement on this whole, you know, 12-inch stack of paper. I summarized it in like a three- or a four-page uh, document. And three days before the board meeting, I sent it to the board and I said, we're going to have some very important decisions to make because we have an offer from Edwards Life Sciences and we're going to vote on it in 72 hours. And um, here's the contents of it. Uh, please be prepared with your vote. And um, so, um, you know, they had 72 hours to evaluate an, um, an offer. Now, Edwards obviously had to make a fair offer for the company, right? So we had raised $14 million in financing, okay, about $2 million in C, uh, I'm sorry, $20 million, 14 in a Series A, five and a half, and then about a half. So we had... We had twenty million dollars in financing is what we had raised, and Edwards was going to buy the company for one hundred and twenty-five million plus a thirty million earnout. So all the shareholders would do very, very, very well in this proposed acquisition. But J and J, Boston, and Medtronic had to make up their minds about whether they were going to lob in some disruptive offer in 72 hours. Well, it was pretty interesting because Medtronic had their own valve uh, business. And guess what their valve business thought about percutaneous valves? They thought it was a ridiculous idea. It was never going to work. And so the CEO of Medtronic was hearing one thing from Steve Osterley that he thought it was a good idea to buy this technology and another thing from his valve business that said this was a stupid idea, it was never going to work. And so they actually couldn't make up their minds. They just decided not to vote. Boston Scientific said, we could make a higher offer, but it's a whole lot less upfront money. So actually, the offer you get from Edwards is a better offer. Um, and actually, uh, Paula Violetta showed up in person for the board meeting to vote for the acquisition. And then uh, Johnson & Johnson, I don't think he ever read the memo. 
<laughs> so they didn't actually show up for the board meeting. So um, at the end of the day, um, the deal went through. And um, I told Mike that I would drive over to meet him because he was in New York and tell him in person. And we had dinner together that evening after the board meeting. So um, it was actually the beginning of investment because, you know, we had proven feasibility, but we didn't have a manufacturable design. We, you know, we had done a nice deal with a company called 3F Therapeutics where they were going to do manufacturing for us, and they would use uh, equine pericardium. Uh, but uh, J&J's, I mean, uh, Edwards' manufacturing was so much better. Uh, of course, they made thousands of valves a year. No, that is a fantastic example of how an entrepreneur and a head of a company, uh, in your case, I think a, fant- a beautiful story of looking for a win-win in every situation. I think what you've just described all the way from the Cribier kind of implantation story through to this stage is a great lesson in in entrepreneurship to always look for win-win and give people and almost put ourselves in the issue and ask them what's in it for us. And that way it seals the deal for what what is it that I want to achieve. I think that's that's a great story, Stan. You know, I'm uh, I'm proud of a few things in this. Uh, I'm not one that spends a lot of time looking backwards, but I'm proud. Number one, I gave stock to every one of the employees at PBT. So we had people who were who were sewers, sewing valves in the back of of the offices in PBT and in Israel, and they didn't understand what a stock option was. And they made a year's salary. Mm. And I'm really proud that we gave them stock options. Well, they didn't even know what one was and would never ask for it, right? And I, I, I would encourage everybody to do that kind of thing for their employees. Everybody should participate in the risk that we take in our startups. Two, I'm proud for the patients, right? We, we serve some very needy patients that no one really recognized. You know, the there's a multi-billion dollar market no one could see and no one believed in, but they were there. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I'm proud of that. And thirdly, I've known a lot of entrepreneurs who made money for themselves and their shareholders, but they didn't create value for the company that acquired them. So it was, in fact, kind of a win-lose situation. I'm actually proud of the fact that we made really good money for our shareholders who entrusted us, and we made money for the acquiring company. And that, to me, is a true you know, win-win. We won for patients. We won for the shareholders. We won for the acquiring company. And and um, it it does make you feel good. And some people say, well, you sold too early. You know, this is a multi-billion dollar market. Why don't you take it further? You know, there were huge risks in scaling it up. And in fact, you know, maybe the, the comparison is if you look at Corvalve, which was our major competitor, they took it out much further. I think they actually had a CE mark when Med- Medtronic went back and bought them, 
right? And uh, they paid, I think, something like $900 million for, for Corvalve, which is a huge amount of money, right? But they also had to make huge investments to get where they were. The PBT shareholders did better than the early Corvalve shareholders because we had only raised $20 million. So, the, you know, part of the lesson there is that conservation of funding, being very efficient with how you spend your money early on is a key aspect of return for entrepreneurship. I see these companies that spend, you know, they, they raise 80, $100 million. It's hard to get a return on that kind of money. So uh, all of this is, I mean, it's a pretty implausible story. I mean, it, it sort of just required all of the right things to happen at all the right times. I mean, you did everything sort of the opposite of what the business schools teach you or especially medical device companies teach you, which is don't start with the highest risk patients. Don't move the referring physicians so outside of their comfort zone that you can't get traction with them. And you're doing all of this without a medical degree you're doing all of this in in such um, a, a fiscally responsible, but still a bootstrap sort of way. How did you go from where you started to basically coordinating one of the greatest <laughs> big three heists I think I've ever seen, and and continuing on this trajectory? It's pretty amazing. Well, I. I um... I feel very lucky. I've, I've been involved in founding a lot of companies, a lot of technologies. You know, um, personally, the key thing for me is surround yourself with brilliant people, right? Stan Rabinovich, Alain Cribier, Marty Leon, just amazing, you know, all the soft Bosch and the team in Israel, brilliant people. Um, and you have to entrust them. Right, uh, communicate well and entrust them, and be a genuine leader. And I think when you when you approach things from a perspective of humility and learning, I think you're you're able to to take on different perspectives, understand people's concerns, and move things forward. I I, I so I I give all the credit to the teams that I've been able to put together and the brilliant people I've worked with. I think, I think the second thing is to be a lifelong learner. I've gone to, I don't know, 10 to 15 medical meetings a year for 30 years. And, um, and I read medical journals every day. And I think just kind of being a lifelong learner, I don't have the degrees I've had, MD, PhDs work for me, many of them. And um, I have a bachelor's degree in biology, and I learn from them, and I, I teach myself. And um, I, I have to be able to talk medicine with the top people in the world. And that's the requirement I have. So I have to meet that requirement. I have to be on, on my game every day. And I went on to be the chief scientist at Edwards. That was the other thing that is very unusual is that I stayed on with Edwards for almost 15 years. Great group of people there. I wanted to see the technology through. It wasn't just proving the feasibility, but I wanted to be a part of 
of making this a real device. And so we went through several iterations of improvements. I went on and worked on mitral and tricuspid valve therapy. Um, and I just recently retired from Edwards. And, um, but my brain didn't retire, so I started an incubator called NXT Biomedical. And, um, and I brought on a team of brilliant young engineers, and uh, they're a lot smarter than I am. And um, we're trying to make the um, quite a number of, of new devices and new therapies with a focus on kind of breakthrough therapies. And I've got uh, Deerfield Capital and Johnson & Johnson and Edwards all to fund this. Uh, it, again, is a little bit of a different... Um, kind of incubator most well you know there are two different kinds of incubators first of all one kind of incubator houses companies and kind of you know helps them along we incubate ideas into startup companies so we take early ideas through a feasibility process and the output of startup companies and the problem with that model is going to get funding for each one and so I've pre-funded the whole thing. So we have $275 million where we kind of have baseline funding, then we have funding to take things through design validation, design verifications, and early human studies, and then we have Series A funding set aside. So we actually get to spend our time focusing on development. The, you know, fundraising is a colossal waste of time. There is I don't think of any other instance where we would accept this kind of inefficiency, right? If you're a startup company, you talk to 60, 70, 80 venture capitalists before you find somebody who will fund you. If you're a VC, you talk to 100 startup companies before you find one you'll invest in. Where would we tolerate that kind of inefficiency? It's, it's ridiculous. And it's a huge distraction to the startup companies. So we actually spend our time doing product development. What a novel idea. Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, the other thing that was really fun to do, uh, if I go back, is um, Edwards was very, very supportive of, this technology, even when, by the way, the surgical heart valve group at Edwards did not believe in this technology, even after we were acquired. One of my employees told me she had worked in the surgical valve group, and she asked her boss, what do you think of this, this acquisition Edwards is making? And her boss told her, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen in your life. <laughs> so there were, there were huge skeptics, even within Edwards. Um, and Mike Masalam, I give him huge credit because his medical advisory board told him it was a stupid idea and he shouldn't make the acquisition. These are all cardiothoracic surgeons. So <clears throat> he kind of bet his job on doing this acquisition. And then he put really top talent on supporting this effort. Uh, people like um, Larry Wood, who was just a phenomenal force in making this technology real and has been the major steward of this at, uh, at Edwards. <clears throat> the three partner trials that studied 
high-risk non-surgical patient, intermediate-risk patients, and low-risk patients gradually gave the percutaneous valve um, the, uh, the clinical validation it needed to become the multi-billion dollar product that it is today. And then people like Loxon Suramani, who was the, the head of R&D for the, for the uh, transcatheter valve, uh, shepherded it through multiple generations, uh, along with the, the group in Israel, uh, to become a really amazing product. Uh, one of the things I'm amazed at and proud of is that over half the patients today that receive a transcatheter heart valve go home the next day. Imagine getting your heart valve replaced yeah. and going home the next day. Uh, Mehmet Oz was uh, the only cardiothoracic surgeon that believed in this product when I talked to them. He was the guy who told me, <clears throat> you know, the question is not whether they live or die, it's what zip code did they go home to? Meaning if they went home, they were probably going to do okay. And if they went to a nursing facility, they were struggling. And he had this very patient-centric view as a surgeon that was very, very refreshing. Uh, when I first showed him the valve, he said, why would I ever suture in a valve? I mean, it was a phenomenally disruptive view of the world. So, you know, he was, um, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, uh, I guess somebody who gave me a lot of encouragement, which I, I really appreciated that early on. Most surgeons did not. And that was the case at Edwards. And for Edwards, it was disruptive. Imagine if you, your major business is cardiothoracic surgeon, and then you buy a company that seemingly undermines them. That's the innovator's dilemma, right? And um, Edwards took that on, and I think that was largely uh, Mike Masalam and others that were willing to disrupt their own marketplace to create this new technology that would uh, that would be a leading technology in the world. So um, big kudos yeah. to that. Yeah, which group. again speaks to the distinction in which patients would be eligible for surgery, which wouldn't, and how you kind of went about demonstrating that, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a, it's, it's a great lesson in innovation, which is one of the big reasons why we wanted to have you on the show here. Um, Stan, there is also one other thing that you kind of glanced over uh, multiple times during the whole thing, <laughs> which was your involvement in, in coronary artery stenting. Uh, you worked with some fundamentally new technology on that front as well. I mean, that's taken for granted at this point of time, just like the way the transcutaneous valves are <laughs> at this point of time as well. Um, uh, but that was actually taken for granted even in the 1990s when you started off with PVT. So do you want to tell us a bit more on your involvement with this coronary stents as well? Well, you know, the, there's some similarity. You know, when I first started working at coronary stents, I talked to many, many interventional cardiology. Interventional cardiology was really called invasive cardiology at that time. And what they did predominantly was angiography. Yeah. Right? 
they would squirt dye to illuminate coronary arteries. Um, and when someone had a, a uh, stenosis, a few of them would do balloon angioplasty, yeah. uh, which was not a great procedure. And many, many patients just went on to bypass surgery if they had multifocal disease. So stenting, you know, let's start with the problem. The problem was it was about a 50% restenosis rate with balloon angioplasty. And so that was a fundamental limitation of this technology. The other fundamental limitation was the best balloon angioplasty was when you had small dissections. That actually gave you the best outcome. If you did look at the studies back then, if you ended up with a series of small dissections, you ended up with a better outcome and a lower restenosis rate. The problem was trying to get small dissections, you ended up with big dissections. And big dissections meant the patient went to emergency coronary artery bypass yeah. graft surgery. <laughs> now, the surgeons didn't believe angioplasty was a good idea to begin yeah. with. And your worst day as a cardiologist was begging the surgeon who didn't want to, didn't think you should be doing these cases to bail you out. Oh, I still remember that conversation in my hospital back in the day when, when I was actually a student. <laughs> and I, I vividly remember some very animated conversations between cardiologists and surgeons. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, that was the problem, was that many, uh, you know, a significant percentage, probably 10% of these patients ended up going to emergency coronary by artery bypass graft surgery, which is the worst day in the cardiologist's life. So the idea of stenting came about first to treat the dissections and then uh, maybe disruptively to treat restenosis, which is where I came, came in, is I thought this was a technology that could do that. And a lot of the entrepreneurial work came from, you know, Richard Schatz and Julio Palmez. But, you know, we were the guys actually doing the work of the early clinical studies. And so I got to be involved in running the stress and benestent trials, which were both published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, and working through some of the issues around things like uh, anticoagulation for stents. And then I started working on the heparin coating of stents, radiation used with stents, and then finally um, I did a lot of the early work in drug-eluting stents before I left J&J. So that was a great background for my work in, um, in doing um, the early work of percutaneous aortic valves. And also um, I think a lot of that were were all of that were great predicates for doing a lot of the early work in structural heart disease. So, yeah, I feel like my career has been very blessed in, in those things. And I've also sat on several boards with new technologies. And, um, you know, I've learned how to do it the wrong way. And I've learned a few ways to do, hopefully do it better. Um, but the coronary step, side, learning the imaging catheter-based systems was really important for a lot of the later work that I, I worked on. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, simply because I think the, the balloon or the transcutaneous valve 
replacement is essentially a bigger stent with a wall mounted in it, right? So I think I think it, it's very clear how some of your work in the stents area had kind of set you up for what you wanted to do with with Cribier and and how to appreciate it and take that forward through development and and translation. I used to tell I used to tell people, by the way, that um, and of course it was oversimplifying things, but I would say that. The transcatheter valve was a combination of three known therapies. It was stenting. It was catheter-based intervention um, with with a balloon, which we knew. And then it was a tissue-based heart valve. And it was the integration of those three together um, that was disruptive. And I think the thing that Cribier thought of that was really remarkable for the time and very disruptive was the idea that you could actually stent aortic stenosis out of the way with a strong balloon. And that's what made it very feasible. Yeah, I think I think that is the best summary of, of, of your your endeavors here in this in this area, Stan. Um, I think on that note, I think it's been fantastic to just listen to your journey. And I think there are some very critical kind of leadership lessons that I, I just want to kind of circle back on. I think from, I've just been making notes as you've been talking. The first and foremost, I think that 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 kind of rung true with me was finding talent, nurturing them and figuring out ways to ultimately get them to, or give them uh, rewards before they even ask, uh, why am I doing this? I think, I think that is a fantastic First lesson for 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 an entrepreneur and, and and a founder. The next one is about your ability. The story about how you brought people over from Israel and coached them and mentored them and gave them new skills is is another aspect of that. Um, I think the most amazing thing that 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 Jojo and I really appreciate you sharing with great degree of detail is negotiating the external factors to a T uh, in in such an amazing fashion. I'm running out of superlatives for that one there, Um, Stan. Laser focus on what you want to achieve despite any of the external factors and feedback that you've got. And based on everything that you've said in terms of fundraising, it is the most efficient pursuit of excellence in this area. I think that the whole thing is just a lesson in innovation and I think I, I just want to thank you um, for just taking my message um, when I reached out to you when you didn't even know who I was and you kind of just kind of spoke to me and, and we've had multiple conversations in the recent months, etc. I think this is just a fantastic and a humbling experience for me uh, when from a kid who actually grew up to a mechanical valve to actually seeing something like this and talk to somebody who actually built these things. Thank you. So, could I, if you don't mind, I'll end with a uh, with a one minute story that um, absolutely is really important to me. I guess personally, so I went to see Cribier after um, some time. I think we we're working on on uh, clinical protocols, and I flew to to Rouen. And one of the patients that he had treated, unbeknownst to me, was there for her six month follow up. Oh, I'm sorry, one year follow up. One year follow up. And um, so I was meeting with Dr. Cribier and Dr. Elchaninov and talking with them. And this patient heard that I was in the hospital. 
and she wanted to meet me. And uh, so after some meetings, I went to see her, and um, she said um, she had been, you know, this woman was deathly ill, right? She, she had a probably a one-month prognosis she was going to die, and she had been that previous summer with her family in the south of France in the ocean with her grandchildren. And she told me about the joy of being with her grandkids. And she said, thank you for saving my life. And that's something as entrepreneurs, we never get overhearing. We have this amazing capability to impact medicine in a way that does save people's lives. And it is probably the most meaningful job I can think of. And that's the biggest reward there is when you get to meet these patients and see the impact that you can have on them. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you guys and tell this story. Um, I'm very thankful for all the people who were on this journey. And, um, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it. That, well, I'd, I'd like to add my, my name to the ring of people who are grateful. My, my dad had quintuple bypass in the 90s and thankfully he made it through that one had some replacements done just a couple years ago and he's he's still coming strong because of technologies like yours so thank you thank you for coming on okay bye-bye our sound editor is Sainten Chandran the soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad you can find their collections on Apple iTunes store Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec. You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.